How can we make faith stick with the next generation? How do we pass on our faith to our kids so that it captures their hearts? Those are the questions we're going to be asking in our small groups. And so if you're interested, we truly hope that you join us. It's really going to be awesome. And as Pastor Dave mentioned, there is free lunch today. So um, warm welcome to everybody here today, especially if you're watching online. We're glad you're, you're with us this morning. Uh, we're continuing our series uh, this morning called Belief in an Age of Skepticism. And this morning, I want to begin by talking to you about a phenomenon that is affecting millions of Americans, 155 million Americans to be exact. Whether you are a teenager, or the parent of a teenager, or the grandparent of a teenager, you have probably heard about this growing interest, particularly among boys, and it's a very addictive activity. I'm speaking of a topic that can be both exciting and bring angst at the same time. It's the topic of video games. Now, some of you are saying video games. <laughs> they rot your brains. Kids need to play outside and exercise like I did when I was a kid. Well, there might be some wisdom in that, but statistics do tell us that out of the 155 million Americans who play video games, 5 million play more than 40 hours a week. It's like a full-time job. <clears throat> While this may be localized to teenagers, adults are not immune to this either. In fact, the revenues collected by the industry rival that of professional sports, Movies and TV. Wow. Video games are certainly making an impact whether you like it or not. Now, a chief example of this is a very popular game called Fortnite. You may have heard of it. It is estimated that 125 million children play this game. And while there are several different iterations, the Battle Royale version is the most popular. This version feature, can feature up to 100 players simultaneously, usually connecting online. They can play alone or in teams, but the ultimate goal of the game is to be the last person standing at the end. And so the safe zone starts to shrink, nobody has an advantage, everybody has to go find weapons. It's kind of like being part of the Hunger Games, may the odds ever be in your favor. But let's pause for a minute, for a minute and meditate on the number of players again. 125 million that's a lot of people playing this game. So the natural question for us to ask is, well, why the obsession? Why are people obsessed with this? Well, cultural critic Frank Guan offers some reasons for this mania and passion. He says, first, games make sense. Right? The rules are clear. The purpose of the game is always clear. Well, secondly, you're always the hero. You get to be the one who saves the world. Third, they're convenient. You don't have to leave home. And finally, they, while they can be very challenging, at the end of the day, the game is ultimately designed at some level for you to succeed. And so all of this caused Guan to make a very profound statement. He said, video games solve the question of meaning in a world where transcendent values have vanished. We turn to games when real life fails us, not merely in touristic fashion, but closer to the case of emigrants fleeing a home that has no place for them. Life is terrifying. Why not, then, live through what you already know? A game. And so video games solve the question of meaning in a world where transcendent values have vanished. When real life fails us, we turn to video games to find meanings. Now, when you get frustrated for, with your child playing too many video games, I suggest you might have never thought they were trying to find meaning and that they didn't know their purpose. Now, I'm not against video games. However... It is concerning when people are getting their meaning and purpose from video games, from a world not based in reality. 
Now, the obsession with video games points to two fundamental issues that are going on within our larger culture. First, uh, we're engaging in prolonged adolescence. In his book, The Vanishing American Adult, U.S. Senator Ben Sass asserts that too often we strand our kids in Neverland with Peter Pan, allowing them to find their meaning in a virtual world rather than helping them discover meaning and purpose in the real world. And so he says we need to challenge them uh, like this. He says, I do believe that good parenting includes a basic desire for your kids to reach satisfying answers to the bigger questions of life. Let's not stifle that. Now, second, the meaninglessness in our world has aided the rise of the suicide epidemic. Now, people who try to find their meaning in video games aren't immune to this, and you say, well, hold on a second, what do video games have to do with suicide? Well, uh, take Fortnite as an example. In fact, a recent article detailed how a 17-year-old boy became so obsessed with the game that he started to take amphetamines so that he could play 12 hours straight. The goal was to boost himself in the power rankings. That was his purpose. And when that didn't satisfy him, he decided that he wanted to end it all, so he tried to jump out a window until his father caught him. Now, video games are one example of this, but it points again to a larger issue within the culture. After the recent high-profile suicides of celebrities Kate Slade and Anthony Bourdain, um, two people who seemingly had everything going for them, political commentator Kirsten Powers wrote an article in USA Today detailing her own struggle with suicidal thoughts. As she was going through a very difficult and chaotic season of her life, Powers considered ending it all. Well, noting her personal achievements, family and friends told her, Kirsten, you're living the dream. But she said, I, I couldn't see any reason to be alive. In fact, Powers notes that uh, suicide rates have risen 30% since 1999, making it a national crisis. In fact, even more concerning is that um, youth suicide rates have increased 70% in the last decade. Why? Well, many factors contribute to this. Powers asks why so many Americans are getting to this level of emotional despair. And her conclusion is this. It is largely caused by key problems in the way that we live. Here's what she says. She says, it lays bare the truth that there is nothing you can purchase, possess, or achieve that will make you feel fulfilled over the long term. Rather than pathologizing the despair and emotional suffering that is a rational response to a culture that values people, uh, values people based on their ever-escalating financial and personal achievements, we should acknowledge that something is very wrong. And she continues. She says, we should stop telling people who yearn for a deeper meaning in life that they have an illness or need therapy. Instead, we need to help people craft lives that are more meaningful and built on a firmer foundation than personal success. Now, let me be clear. Mental illness, depression, and anxiety are complex issues. But I do think, in many cases, our culture has imposed pressures on us that make us question our meaning and purpose. In fact, I think conservative commentator Ben Shapiro gets it right when he says the rise in suicide points to something larger. He says there is, seems to be a crisis of meaning taking place in America. And that crisis of meaning is heavily linked to a decline in religious observance. And so church, I would just simply say, we need to see our, our crucial role that we play in society. So let's step back and recognize that we matter in ways beyond which we can possibly imagine. Now, you may be here this morning and you're not a Christian or listening and you're not a Christian, and you can't really agree with that last statement. 
But I, what I want to do this morning is, is dialogue with you about a big question that, that we want to talk about today, and it's this. Is it true that we can discover meaning and purpose apart from God? And so I want to, what I want to talk with you about today largely is this. What is your reason for living? In fact, last week, Pastor Dave did a great job talking about where we came from, our origins, what our world is, 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 uh, is based on, that we were designed by a designer, but this week, we want to take that a step further and ask a rather, a rather metaphysical question um, about our purpose. What are we designed for? Or put it another way, how do we answer that age-old question, what is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of life? Is there a greater purpose? Or is all of history, as Shakespeare said, just a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing? Now, truthfully, I think we live such busy lives with either work or play that we never stop and ask that question of ourselves. What's my reason for living? At the end of the day, what do I hope to have accomplished? And here's the funny thing, that we live in New Jersey. Everybody is so busy and time is of the essence that if I came up to you after this service and I said, I would like to meet with you on Tuesday at 3 p.m., you would want to know the reason And you would want a justification for the hour that I am asking for. Because if you're going to give me your precious time, because there's a lot of things you could be doing, you need to have a crystal clear reason why I should have the privilege of occupying your calendar for that hour. But take a step back and let me ask you a bigger question. Have you ever asked yourself what your purpose in life is? What are you doing on this earth breathing its air? Because the truth is, many of us could give an answer for every single thing on our calendar, our digital calendar, our hard calendar, whatever it is. But if I turn to you and ask the question, what is the reason for your life? There's many people who can't give that answer. Why? You owe yourself an answer to that question. Because when you don't have meaning, it affects everything. You start to wonder, why am I even alive? And if you don't have an answer to that question, how can you make sense of anything else that you do? And so it's interesting then that if you look in the Bible, you will find a story about a king in Jerusalem named Solomon. Solomon is a guy who wrestled with this question. In fact, he wrote three books. He wrote Song of Solomon about the wife of his youth. He wrote Proverbs when he was middle-aged. And then he gets to the book of Ecclesiastes, and he's an old man. He's become a philosopher. And this is how he starts the book. He writes this. He says, The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. Well, that was uplifting. Let's close in prayer and go home. (laughs) But it's getting at our fundamental issue of meaning. And I think if Solomon was alive today, he might contemplate playing video games. But the question we need to discuss today is this, can you have meaning and purpose without God? And I think King Solomon will be our guide Because there's three areas that we naturally go to find meaning. And I'll simply call them questing for purpose, indulging in pleasure, and boasting in possessions. Purpose, pleasure, and possessions. And I suspect at one point in time in your life, you have sought one of these things. What is your reason for living? Let's pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you that you are the one who came to die on the cross and and broke the power of sin in our lives. 
Thank you for the gospel, Lord. But as we come in here today and ask this question of meaning, there's, there's many different groups of people in here. Father, some are just asking a question. What, what is meaning to life, thinking it can be achieved apart from God? Some have been Christians for many years, Lord, and yet they still don't know their purpose. And so, Father, I pray that you would open up our hearts, soften them, so that we could hear from your word and from you. We give this time to you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Questing for purpose. Now, as we venture on this journey, the question we're asking in this first part is simply, what is my purpose? What am I for? Now, many people throughout history thought that this answer could be achieved through more knowledge, by being uh, enlightened. In fact, philosopher Rene Descartes famously said, I think, therefore I am. And by extension, I can acquire more knowledge about life. The modern atheists will make the argument that the more conversations that we have, the more scientific discoveries that we can make, the better off humanity will be and the more purpose we can, we can find or create. But I want to ask you a question. What does more wisdom translate into meaning and purpose? Well, Solomon was skeptical about this. This is what he writes if you skip down to the end of chapter 1. He says, I, the teacher, was king over, Jer- king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore wisdom, all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. See, Solomon says, I I wanted to find the meaning of life, and so I whipped out my books, I studied hard, I traveled to places near and far to explore the natural world. I spoke to many people, and, and it was hard. Like, God has laid a heavy burden on mankind, and so thousands of years later, we're still asking the question, what is the meaning of life? What is our purpose in life? That's what Solomon's getting at. Well, in his recent work, Making Sense of God, Tim Keller suggests there's two ways that modern people try to find meaning through their knowledge. He says you could pursue created meaning or discovered meaning. The second, he argues, is more durable. In fact, Keller says this. He says, to have meaning in life is to have both an overall purpose for living and the assurance that you're making a difference by serving some good beyond yourself. And so with that in mind, let's evaluate these two ways of finding true meaning. First, this this idea of created meaning is just that. It's something we create. And it's undergirded by something Pastor Dave talked about last week, the philosophy of naturalistic Darwinian evolution. Because in that worldview, there's no creator God. The material universe is all there is. And if you take that worldview and then apply it to the realm of meaning and purpose, you can see the natural conclusion, right? Right? The universe doesn't provide us with a purpose. We're just randomly here. And so University of Chicago professor Jerry Coyne puts it this way. He says, cosmology doesn't give one iota of evidence for purpose or for God. Secularists see a universe without apparent purpose and realize we must forge our own purposes and ethics. But although the universe is purposeless, our lives aren't. We make our own purposes and they are real. We make our own purposes, and they are real. Now, if you're here this morning and you believe we're here by accident and chance, let me just suggest that you have to believe this. But let me ask you a question. Is it true that we can have purpose in a purposeless universe? In the end, aren't we all going to die? Ah, well, you may object and say, well, I I want to make a better world for my children and, and the children after them, my descendants. But won't they also die? If you believe that the material universe is all there is, at some point in the distant future, the universe is going to collapse in on itself, the sun is going to go supernova, the earth will no longer be here, everybody is going to be 
gone, wiped out of existence. And if that is the case, does it really matter? Does it really, really matter what we do in the here and now? And yet people still long for meaning. Why? How is there meaning if one day everything disappears? This is especially acute at the end of life. In fact, a guy named William Breitbart, who's the uh, chairman of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Science at New York's Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, specializes in end-of-life care for terminally ill cancer patients. And so he says, for much of my career, I've been surrounded by suffering people who just want to die. When I walked into the room, my patients would say, I only have three months to live. That's all, if that's all I have, I see no purpose or value to living. In fact, one specific patient, a former IBM executive, who was diagnosed with terminal colon cancer said, everybody said how important it is to have a positive attitude. But I'm not Lance Armstrong. I just want to jump in the grave. See, if death means non-existence, Breitbart, Breitbart's patients reasoned, then what meaning could life still possibly have if you're going to die? And if life has no meaning, there's no point in suffering through cancer, Right? I mean, by the 90s, physician-assisted suicide was a hot topic in Breitbart circles. And so as Breitbart heard more and more stories of assisted suicide, he began to wonder specifically what was driving the terminally ill to give up on life. Because the assumption had been that the ill chose to end their lives because they were in terrible pain. But when Breitbart asked patients why they wanted a prescription for assisted suicide, many of them said it was because... There was no meaning to live. They had lost it. And so Breitbart knew he could treat depression with drugs or therapy, but he was stumped when it came to treating meaninglessness. What I suddenly discovered, he said, was that the importance of meaning, the search for meaning, the need to create meaning, the ability to experience meaning was a basic motivating force in human behavior. We are not taught this stuff at medical school, he said. People need meaning, but can you create it? Does it matter since everything will be gone in the end? In fact, even Thomas Nagel of NYU says this. He says, the problem is that although there are justifications for most things big and small that we do within life, none of these explanations explain the point of your life as a whole. It wouldn't matter if you had never existed, and after you have gone out of existence, it won't matter that you ever did exist. Wow. Now that is a sober and macabre thought. So can you truly create meaning? Well, Cowher says a more durable form of meaning is this idea of discovered meaning. And in in this view, what he means is that there's a reason for the universe, there is a creator, and the way to find meaning in life is to search and discover who that creator is and why you were made. And so you don't have to create the meaning, it's already there. You just have to recognize it, you have to discover it. And so if Christianity says that there is a God who made us out of love to know him and to worship him, and we turned away from him and became lost, which obscured our meaning, our understanding of meaning. And so we search and we search and we search, and he promises if we search for him, he'll bring us back to himself. And so what I would ask you to evaluate this morning is this, isn't it more rational to conclude that our longing for meaning is actually a clue to the reality that a creator exists. Is there actually someone who gives us meaning? And if that is the case, meaning is something to be discovered, not created. See, Solomon says meaningless is everything under the sun. You, can, you can't create meaning, he says. 
You can try to expand your mind. You can try to increase your intellect, but what will it get you? In the end, you'll die. In fact, Solomon says this in verse 14. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, chasing after the wind. See, Solomon read the important thinkers. He searched all branches of literature and science. He studied the animal kingdom. He learned business. He asked his advisors to offer explanations, but still he found nothing in the universe that provided ultimate meaning. Why? Because you have to look for something outside the universe to find meaning. Indeed, there is nothing new under the sun. And so seeking purpose based solely on the material world is futile. And creating meaning with your mind will ultimately crumble. Friends, you will never change through human wisdom. Meaning for life must come from something outside ourselves. Now, maybe you're here today and you realize that already, and you don't like it. That you've, you've tried to search for meaning in your knowledge, and when that failed you, you went to another pursuit. You started to indulge in your pleasures. That when our intellect fails to produce a purpose, we often turn to another question. And it's this question, where do I find satisfaction in life? How do I get satisfaction? I mean, if I can't find my purpose, I might as well do things that seem to make me happy, right? You might as well eat what you want, sleep with who you want, spend as much as you want. If all you want is to be happy, then your purpose becomes your pleasure. Your purpose becomes your pleasure. But Solomon has already treaded these waters. This is what he says in chapter 2. He says, I said to myself, come now. I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Solomon says, I tried that too. My purpose was pleasure. All that was meaningless. It wasn't lasting. Now, I didn't mention before, but the Hebrew word that's translated as meaningless here actually means it's not lasting or it doesn't have eternal value to the pursuit. To which I would say it means ultimately that you won't find meaning in anything. In the end, things won't matter. And Solomon knows this. In fact, he had all the wine and women he could possibly want, and yet he was still left empty. He recognized that pursuing pleasure ultimately ends in futility. Now, for some of you, this was your college life. For the first couple of weeks, you had all the best intentions of going out and and, and pursuing your intellectual pursuits. Uh, You had grandiose ideas of graduating with a 4.0 GPA, and, and then you pledged a fraternity. Or a sorority, and, and that all changed. Your college pursuit shifted from academics to partying. Your purpose became your pleasure. And so your meaning was ultimately tied with the next party or the next hookup. And, and let me ask you a question. Where did that lead you? Did that have any lasting value other than regret or just a remembrance of the good old times? Actor Russell Brand reflects on his battles with addiction also, and offers us something to think about. He says this, drugs and alcohol are not my problem. Reality is my problem. Drugs and alcohol are my solution to fill up a hole inside of me. Now, pause and just consider that for a second. Reality is the problem. And is that not the root problem when it comes to meaning and purpose? We, We don't want to accept reality, so we try to find meaning in anything other than God. Video games, drugs, alcohol, relationships. I mean, Solomon continues. He says this, laughter, I said. It's madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? 
I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the sun during the few days of their lives. I tried to cheer myself with wine. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the sun. See, don't you see? Solomon was living out the mantra of our day. YOLO! You only live once. Follow your heart. Do whatever makes you happy, and that will bring you meaning. But then why do we still have a crisis of meaning in our country and world? Why are people still asking, is this all there is? Well, I would suggest this mindset doesn't lead to fulfillment and meaning. In fact, Americans love to say things like, follow your passions, pursue your dreams, do what you love, love what you do. But do these mantras represent the path to vocational clarity, personal fulfillment, and human flourishing? Not according to a new study from Stanford and and, and Yale, which found that following your passion is likely to lead to overly limited pursuits, inflated expectations, and early or eventual burnout. This is what the study's authors concluded. They said, people are often told to find their passion as though passions and interests are preformed and must simply be discovered. The idea, however, has hidden motivational implications. Now listen to what they say. Urging people to find their passion may lead them to put all their eggs in one basket, but then drop that basket when it becomes difficult to carry. See, although our culture tells us to look within, assuming a fixed set of passions will guide our way, researchers found more positive results among those who would allow room for interests and intelligence to develop over time. The study encourages us to ask, are we still looking only to the self, or are we looking outward and upward as well? Which caused New York Times columnist columnist David Brooks to write this. Most successful young people don't look inside and then plan a life. They look outside and find a need or God's call, which summons their life. And that is right. And Solomon ultimately says, you want to follow your heart? You want to live how you want because YOLO? It's all meaningless, he says. But, but I'm doing what I love. I'm passionate about, about that. But will it last? So you want, you want meaning, and you, you try to find it by pursuing satisfaction in every pleasurable things you can get your hands on, and yet you're still discontent. Why? Why does it feel like you're living out that old Rolling Stones song, I can't get no satisfaction? There's always the next phase in the video game, always the next step in life. And if you're living for yourself and your own pleasure, you are going to be not, never going to be satisfied because you're looking for the next thing. It's vanity, Solomon says. You're always looking for food. A Japanese woman describes it this way. She says, in Japan, it's like we have two stomachs. We have one stomach for ordinary food, for meat and potatoes and that kind of thing. That fills up one stomach, but, she said... It's like we have another stomach. And she described this as the rice stomach. She said, unless we eat rice, we don't feel satisfied. And I guess if Jesus had been speaking to her, he'd have said, I'm the rice of life. I'm the one who can satisfy this other stomach, this kind of spiritual hunger. See, we all have a spiritual hunger that we long for, don't we? A deeper, a truer sense of meaning and purpose. St. Augustine said it the best. He said, you have made us for yourself, and restless is our heart until we find our rest in you. 
You will always be discontent in your search for pleasure because the true solution of your discontent is outside, not inside you. Now, this is one of Augustine's most famous quotes, and he gets it right. We are made by someone, for someone, and it's only when we look outside ourselves to find him that we find our true meaning and purpose. But see, we don't stop here. When our intellect fails us, when our our pursuit of pleasure disappoints us, we turn to what? Possessions and achievements. We begin boasting in possessions. And the reason we begin boasting in our possessions and our achievements is because they have defined us. And in reality, we're trying to answer another important question. Who am I? What's my identity? And for too many of us, it is what we do and what we have that defines us. In fact, Solomon knows this well. He continues in chapter 2. He says, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs. Have you ever made a reservoir? To water grooves of flourishing trees. I also own more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. Keeps going. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor. And this was the reward for my toil. That's quite a list of accomplishments. Maybe you can resonate with some. Building houses, planting vineyards. He had all the wine he wanted. More wealth than anyone around. Greater than anyone in Jerusalem. He was was like the Jeff Bezos of his day. But look at verse 11. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. Chasing after the wind. (laughs) Nothing was gained under the sun. See, Solomon said, I did all these things, and yet, meaningless. Nothing was gained in this life. Let's let that sink in. I mean, has our reason for living been a, become about acquiring more things? And if you're here today and your reason for living has been to acquire more stuff or, or climb the corporate ladder or even to have a great family, Solomon says it's meaningless. One day, you will die. You see, we live in a world with the pressure to perform. And it has caused problems for the modern self. And so one day we stop and we look in the mirror and we ask the question, what am I doing this all for? Why am I killing myself at this job? Who am I? What's my identity? Let me illustrate it this way. Back when I was in seminary, a friend and I were still single and we were talking about our desire to find a spouse. The conversation turned to the topic of satisfaction and my friend looked at me and he said this, He said, isn't it interesting that no matter what you get, you're always looking for the next thing. So you get a girlfriend, well, then you want to get married. Well, then you get married, then you have to have kids. And then you get get kids, and then you want a bigger house. So you get a good job, and then you want a promotion. And then you get a promotion, but then you wish you had more time with your family. And, And on and on it goes, right? What he was saying is that we're living in a world that is always telling us it's never enough, that you always want more. And other people often push us to want more. It's a wild goose chase without a goose. In many ways, you're left asking the question, who am I? What is my identity? And if you don't have a sense of that, you will find yourself in possessions and accomplishments. And so I'd ask the question simply today, where do you get your identity? 
Is it your beauty? That's, it's fleeting. Is it your possessions? They'll break down one day. In fact, the video game system I thought was so cool when I was a kid, it's outdated and gone. I stopped by Yestercades in Somerville the other day and saw an Atari system, which I was blown away by, but man, it didn't look as cool as the video games today. My car has got 150,000 miles on it. At some point, it's not worth fixing. Work? Let me tell you how work is going to end for you, one of four ways. You're going to quit, you're going to get fired, you're going to get laid off, or you're going to retire. If you wanted to, one of those four things happens. If you want to discover meaning and purpose, you have to know who you are and what you were made for. And so if I go back to making sense of God, Tim Keller makes the point of saying that the modern self made identity to which we succumb is based on performance and achievement. And when we look, uh, we try to find our identity, we do it in one of three things. He says, number one, we can look outward. So we, when we do this, we try to get our identity from other people. This can include family or friends or coworkers, but when we do this, we're giving other people control over us because we need their affirmation to have worth and to feel like we've succeeded. And so in this scenario, you're left with a lot of counseling bills because you have to go to the counselor. Number two, you can look inward. That's a very popular cultural message today. The message is this. Don't get affirmation from others. Get affirmation from yourself. Right? You can be anything you want. It doesn't matter what others think. It's the heart of Western individualism. Or as Princess Elsa so eloquently sings in Frozen, it's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. And everybody sang, let it go, let it go. I won't succumb you to that. Finally, finally, we can look upward. We can find our identity in the one who made us and gave us our purpose. And yet so many people resist this, even Christians. But what matters most is what God thinks, not others. And when we're concerned what others think or we, what we think of ourselves, we're going to be crushed. Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard eloquently points out the problem with this. He says, the secular mentality consists simply of such men who, so to speak, mortgage themselves to the world. And what he's saying is that too often we pay a mortgage to other people because we want them to like us, to think well of us, to be impressed by us, and we are left empty not knowing who we truly are. In reality, we can only truly know ourselves when we know ourselves before a holy God. And we can only find meaning and purpose when we know God. In fact, Solomon knows this. This is, this is how he concludes. Chapter 2, verse 22. What do people get for all their toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. That you can have all the accomplishments you want. You can have more money than you know what to do with. And yet you lie awake at night wondering, what is it all for? What am I doing? Why am I here? What is my meaning and purpose? And after wrestling with those questions for two chapters, Solomon provides an answer. He says, a person could do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. And do you see what he's saying? 
That working hard isn't bad. That striving to make a difference in the world isn't bad. That asking the deeper questions of life isn't bad. But, 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 meaning can't come from within. It must come from something outside us. That our work, our pursuit of meaning is nothing unless we do it for the one who truly gives meaning to our lives. You know, many people have asked the question, what is the good life? What's the good life? At the very end of Ecclesiastes, after he's considered philosophical thought, after philosophical thought, here's what Solomon concludes. He says this, Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God. Keep his commandments, for this is the duty of mankind. Fear God. Keep his commandments. That's the good life, because that's what you and I were made for. That the good life will always elude you until you find the one who has breathed life into your lungs. The one who made you and gave you purpose. Because the truth is you and I were made for another world. And yet while we're here, there's two things that God calls us to do. To bring him glory in everything that we do and to love and serve others as we point them to him. And the truth is, even when things are hard in this life, we can find purpose. Psychiatrist Viktor Frankl lived through World War II. And it was a Holocaust survivor. In his famous book, Man's Search for Meaning, he details his experience. He writes this. The gas chambers of Auschwitz, Treblinka, and Maidenek were ultimately prepared not in some ministry or other in Berlin, but rather at the desks and in the lecture halls of nihilistic scientists and philosophers. That these people thought there was no meaning to the universe, and they wanted to create their own meaning through the acquisition of power But Frankel notes the captives in the death camps with the deepest sense of meaning were those who looked beyond their immediate circumstances and they maintained hope and dignity despite their Nazi hell. Maybe you're here today or you're watching online and you feel like you have no purpose in life. Maybe you feel like you're actually walking through hell. What I want to tell you today is that there is someone who loves you who knew you, who knew how many hairs would be on your head before you were born, who knows the number of your days. And he says, come to me. I will breathe life into you and show you purpose. And all the meaninglessness you have been experiencing, I will reverse that. He says, what's the meaning of life? You have to discover your purpose. You have to know where to find true fulfillment, and you have to know your identity. But none of those things will happen unless you discover the one who gives meaning. And here's the crazy thing. It's the crazy thing about this cosmic story we're talking about. The one who gives meaning to our lives doesn't elusively hide himself. He comes for us. You see, uh, when Greek culture rose to prominence, so did their way of thinking. All their philosophers were looking for the reason of life itself, the logos. And the Greek word logos is where we get our English word logic from. It meant reason, and it was a concept the Greeks were pursuing, the the reason for life. And the Greeks relied on knowledge, and after searching and searching and searching for centuries, they realized their intellect failed them. And eventually they saw purpose in pleasure and possessions. Why? Because they realized that reason couldn't answer their questions about meaning. And so they stopped pursuing it. And by the first century AD, people were saying, much like people say today, there's no reason for life. And in the midst of their lack of reason, 
The gospel writer John writes this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Now take notice of that word, word. Do you know what Greek word that is? Lagos. The reason for life. That it was the very thing the Greeks had been searching for. But they made a huge mistake because what they didn't realize is that the Lagos was not a concept, it was a person. And don't miss this. That at, at a time when it seemed like there was no meaning, there was, there was no reason for living, the reason himself came to earth. And he said, truly, truly, I tell you, someone greater than Solomon is here. The very reason for life himself became flesh and dwelt among us in the beginning was the reason for life. Jesus Christ was God. Jesus Christ was with God. All things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made. And in him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. Don't you see? That the meaning of life can only come from the one who gave life to all people. That the only place to find satisfaction for your heart is in the one who designed your heart. That the only way to find our identity is to look to the one who bestows it upon us. And now he says to us, love me, love others. That is your reason for living. That is what we were designed for. And if you run away from it, you will always feel purposeless. Worship team, would you join me on the stage? There's one more song we're going to sing. And as they do, let me, let me speak to the church just for a second. Church, we can give meaning to a meaningless world. And I want to point out that this is a life or death situation. That people are dying from lack of meaning. We have a crisis. People need a reason for living or they will die. And I would suggest that the only durable, the only truly satisfying reason, the only one that will fully quench your heart and your thirst, the only one you can ha- who can tell you who you really are is found in the person of Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the reason for life. And there was nothing more central, nothing more precious, nothing more powerful, nothing more fulfilling, nothing more enduring than living your life for him. Nothing else will bring satisfaction because he meets your deepest needs. And I encourage you that if you want to find meaning, to give your life to him. Amen.